Hello, this is Dr. Pengshen Qian, the editor in chief of Harvardum. Here's a summary of the March 2021 issue of the journal. I want to begin by thanking our outstanding reviewers for their contribution to the peer review of the submitted manuscript. A list of the outstanding reviewers is published in this issue of the journal. The first original article is titled "Relationship Between Device Detected Burden." And duration of atrial fibrillation and the risk of ischemic stroke. The authors studied 384 patients with a cardiac implantable device and an atrial lead. After a mean of 3.2 years of follow-up, the incidence of stroke and the TIA of 14.8 percent or 4.6 percent per year. The burden of atrial fibrillation and the duration of the longest episode demonstrated a significant positive correlation to each other, but not CHATS2 DS2 VASC score. Importantly, although the CHATS2 DS2 VASC score was predictive of stroke and TIA, neither burden nor duration was associated with stroke or TIA. These data suggest that. Among patients with CIED detected atrial fibrillation, once AF occurs, stroke risk seems to be predominantly driven by underlying risk factors and not by the amount AF measured by either the burden or the duration. The next one is titled "Epicardial Course of the Septal Pulmonary Bundle." Anatomical considerations and the clinical implications for roofline completion. 100 consecutive patients underwent AF ablation. A de novo roofline was created between the superior pulmonary veins. In cases of residual gaps, a floor line was created between the inferior pulmonary veins. In addition, microtomography. Imaging and histological analysis of five human donor hearts were performed. The authors found that the epicardial conduction across the roofline is common and requires careful electrogram analysis to detect. In such cases, a floor line can be an effective alternative strategy with clear validation criteria. Myocardial thickness and the fat. Uh, interposition may explain difficulties in achieving lesion and transmorality during roofline ablation. Coming up next is active compression versus standard anterior-posterior defibrillation for external cardioversion of atrial fibrillation, a prospective randomized study. The purpose of this study was to assess the efficacy of applying active compression. On defibrillation electrodes during atrial fibrillation cardioversion, the authors performed a bicenter randomized study, including patients referred for persistent AF cardioversion. Patients were randomly assigned to standard anterior-posterior defibrillation or to defibrillation with active compression applied over the anterior electrode. The authors found that active compression applied to the anterior defibrillation electrode is more effective for persistent AF cardioversion than standard anterior-posterior cardioversion, with lower defibrillation threshold and higher success rate. Next up 
is predicted value of atrial fibrillation during the post-radio frequency ablation blanking period. The current consensus statement recommends the use of a blanking period of three months after the procedure, during which re-intervention should be avoided in patients with AF recurrence. The authors performed a systematic literature review and a meta-analysis to determine the predicted value of the absence of recurrence in the blanking period. For paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, 89% of patients free from early recurrence remain free from late recurrence. The estimate for persistent atrial fibrillation was similar at 91%. The authors conclude that freedom from AF recurrence during the blanking period is highly predictive of longer-term success in castor ablation. Clinical trials in this area may be able to leverage these findings to more quickly assess the potential utility of new ablation technologies and methods, for example, by using early surrogate measures of success. The next article is titled Prognostic Value of the Implantable Defibrillator Computed Respiratory Disturbance Index, the DASAP-HF study. The diagnosis and treatment of sleep apnea in patients with heart failure, or DASAP-HF study, previously demonstrated that the Respiratory Disturbance Index, or RDI, computed by the apnea scan algorithm accurately identifies severe sleep apnea in ICD patients with heart failure. The authors assessed the instance of clinical events after 24 months and investigate the association with RDI values. The RDI calculated at one month after implantation was used to stratify patients below or above 30 episodes per hour. The endpoints were all-cause mortality uh, deaths and a combination of all-cause deaths or cardiovascular hospitalization. Among the 265 enrolled patients, 224 had usable RDI values. After two years of follow-up, the authors found that in heart failure patients implanted with an ICD, higher RDI values are associated with death and cardiovascular hospitalizations. Device-detected severe sleep apnea independently predicts death. Up next is subcutaneous versus transvenous implantable defibrillator, an updated meta-analysis. The purpose of this study was to conduct an updated meta-analysis comparing SICD versus transvenous or TV ICD. 13 studies comprising 9,073 patients were included in the analysis. There was no statistically significant difference in the risk of the primary outcome between SICD and TVICD. Patients with SICD had a lower risk of lead complications and major procedural complications, but a higher risk of pocket complications compared to those with TVICD. No significant differences were found for the other outcomes. The authors conclude that in patients with an indication for ICD without the need for pacing, TV ICD and SICD are overall comparable in terms of composite of clinical relevant device-related complications 
and inappropriate shock. Coming up next is percutaneous management of a superior vena cava syndrome in patients with cardiovascular implantable electronic devices. The authors report their experience with transvenous lead extractions in the setting of symptomatic CIED-related SVC syndrome. Over a 14-year period, more than 1,600 transvenous lead extractions were performed in a high-volume center. Of these, 16 patients underwent the procedure for symptomatic SVC syndrome. After extraction, 6 patients, or 37.5%, received an SVC stent. Balloon angioplasty was performed before standing in 5 cases, or 31.3%. There was one major complication, or 6.3%, due to an SVC tear that was managed surgically with a favorable outcome. 11 patients underwent reimplantation of a CIED. Over a median follow-up of 5.5 years, 12 patients, or 75%, remained free of symptoms. The authors conclude that combining transvenous lead extractions with the percutaneous treatment of symptomatic SVC syndrome is a safe and a viable treatment strategy. The next one is titled, Reassessing the Role of Anti-Tachycardia Pacing in fast ventricular arrhythmias in primary prevention ICD recipients. Results from MEDIT RIT. The purpose of this study was to assess the value of anti-tachycardia pacing, or ATP, for fast ventricular arrhythmias of greater than or equal to 200 beats per minute in patients with primary prevention ICD. The patients were randomized to arms A, B, and C with a time delay between VT detection and the therapy of 3.4 versus 4.9 versus 14.4 seconds. The final shock rate was similar in arm A versus arm B and in arm A versus arm C, despite the marked discrepancy in initial ATP therapy utilization. The authors conclude that in MEDIT RIT, there was a significant reduction in ATP interventions with therapy delays due to spontaneous termination, with no difference in shock therapies. These data suggest that earlier interventions for fast ventricular arrhythmias are likely unnecessary. The value of ATP in primary prevention ICD recipients may be overestimated. The following article is Six Differences in Arrhythmic Burden with the Wearable Cardioverter Defibrillator. The authors studied the wearable ICD or in the Wear It-2 registry. There were 598 women and 1,402 men. The authors found that there is a higher burden of ventricular and atrial arrhythmic events in women than in men. ICD implantation rates at the end of the wearable cardioverter defibrillator use were similar. These findings weren't monitoring women at risk for sudden cardiac death who have a high burden of atrial and ventricular arrhythmias while using the wearable cardioverter defibrillator. Up next is mortality after cardioverter defibrillator replacement. Results of the decode survival score index 
Decode was a prospective single-arm multicenter cohort study of 983 patients who underwent ICD and CRTD replacement during a median follow-up period of 761 days. 114 patients, or 12%, died. In multivariate Cox regression analysis, New York Heart Association class three and four, ischemic cardiomyopathy, body mass index less than 26 kilogram per meter square, insulin administration, age greater than or equal to 75 years, history of atrial fibrillation and hospitalization within 30 days before ICD replacement, remained associated with deaths. The authors conclude that a simple score that includes a limited set of variables appears to be predictive of total mortality in an unselected real-world population undergoing ICD replacement. Evaluation of patients' profile may assist in predicting vulnerability and should prompt individualized options, especially for high-risk patients. The next article is titled "Intra." Procedural dynamics of cardiac conduction during transcatheter aortic valve implantation assessment by simultaneous electrophysiological testing. The purpose of this study was to characterize the impact of transcatheter aortic valve implantation or TAVI on the conduction system as assessed by simultaneous EP testing. The authors found that between baseline and implantation of the valve prosthesis, there were significant increases of HEV interval and QRS duration, but no increase of AHA interval. Implantation depths positively correlated with QRS prolongation, but not with changes of AH or HV interval. The authors conclude that electrophysiological testing during TAVI. Shows impairment of infranodal AV conduction by balloon predilation and valve implantation. This impairment is positively correlated with valve implantation depths and results in an increase of QRS duration, with mainly LBBV pattern on surface electrocardiogram. Coming up is identification of the important risk factors for all-cause mortality of acquired long QT syndrome patients using random survival forests and non-negative matrix factorization. The purpose of this study was to examine the important predictors of all-cause mortality of acquired long QT syndrome patients by applying both random survival forest and non-negative matrix. Uh, factorization analysis. A total of 327 acquired long QT syndrome patients were included. The authors found that cancer and the serum potassium calcium levels can predict all-cause mortality of acquired long QT syndrome patients, as can ECG indicators including JTC interval and QRS duration. The use of random survival forest and non-negative matrix factorization analysis significantly improved mortality prediction. The next paper is three-dimensional guided selective right ventricular septal patient preserved ventricular systolic function and synchrony in pediatric patients. Non-fluoroscopic three-dimensional electroanatomical mapping system. Or EAMs have been developed to guide cardiac catheter navigation and reduce fluoroscopy. 
The authors performed prospective analysis of children adolescents who underwent EAM guided selective RV pacing. 32 complete AV block patients underwent selective selective RV septal pacing with narrow paced QRS and low radiation exposure. Follow-up over 24 months showed preserved LV function and synchrony. The authors conclude that EAM-guided selective RV septal pacing is a feasible technique associated with preserved LV systolic function and synchrony and low radiation exposure in pediatric patients with AV block. Coming up is impact of myocardial fiber orientation on lesions created by novel heated saline enhanced radiofrequency needle tip caster and MRI lesion validation study. 11 dogs underwent caster ablation using a heated saline enhanced radiofrequency or SERF needle tip caster system. 43 of 57 lesions or 75.4% where transmural and lesion depths reached approximately 90% with LV wall thickness. Lesion volume showed a positive linear correlation with power multiplied by radio frequency time index. Maximum width and maximum length of all lesions were distributed in the middle layer of LV where myocardium runs circumferentially. The authors conclude that this caster showed feasibility in creating transmural LV lesions. More importantly, SERF lesions extend, extended along the myocardial fiber orientation. The following article is repeated exposure to transient obstructive sleep apnea related conditions causes an atrial fibrillation substrate in a chronic red model. The transient OSA conditions were simulated by intermittent negative upper airway pressure, which was applied in sedated spontaneously breathing rats to simulate mild to moderate OSA. The authors found that acute simulation of OSA was associated with reversible atrial oxidative stress. Cumulative exposure to these transient OSA-related conditions resulted in AF substrates and was associated with increased AF susceptibility. The authors proposed that mild to moderate OSA with high night-to-night variability may deserve intensive management to prevent atrial substrate development. Next up is a paper titled The Frequency Spectrum of Sympathetic Nerve Activity and Arrhythmogenicity in Ambulatory Dogs. The authors used radio transmitters to record static ganglion nerve activity, subcutaneous nerve activity, heart rate, and blood pressure in six ambulatory dogs. They found high, low, and very low frequency oscillations of the nerve activity. The high-frequency oscillations in blood pressure and heart rate correlate with high-frequency oscillations in sympathetic nerve activity and are present at all times. High-frequency oscillations can be overshadowed by the much larger low-frequency and very low-frequency burst activities. Paroxysmal atrial tachycardias occur only in time windows where low and very low frequencies were the dominant frequency. In addition, The frequency spectra determined in the subcutaneous nerve activity reflect that in the standard ganglion nerve activity. 
These above original articles are followed by a contemporary review titled "Cybersecurity: The Need for Data and Patient Safety with Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices." Dr. Gunther Breithart wrote a viewpoint titled "The Dawn of Radiofrequency Cast Ablation for Cardiac Arrhythmias." As the third entry in our series of articles to celebrate the 30th year of RF ablation, Dr. Barry Marin wrote a viewpoint article titled "The Guidance Affair 15 Years Later." That paper is followed by a historical vignette article titled "Celebrating 50 Years of the Leading Power Source for Cardiac Pacemakers," written by Dr. Harry Mound. I hope you enjoy this podcast. For Hot Rhythm, I'm Editor in Chief Dr. Peng Xianqian.